I emerge in the late afternoon after a night of heavy drinking. Amanaka is already up. Shackney and Rexes are silently sharing a grilled fish in front of the tent. Sleek got back at dawn, tangled his feet in the pots and pans, mumbled a few incomprehensible swear words, and fell into a dreamless sleep. He reeks of alcohol and is still snoring, sprawled beside his cot. The shamans have prepared a bag for each of us, which they stuffed with survival equipment. No provisions. We'll have to manage. Mostly bombs for any wounds and insect bites, water and bivouac gear, as well as ropes made of algae soaked in molasses. Almost unbreakable, which are definitely useful, although how much is still open to debate. As I step outside, I realize that this brief interlude is over. The serious stuff is about to start again. We're about to leave a village that we've never left for 50 days. The weather is mild, a little stormy, basically perfect. The calm before a new storm. I stretch and take a few steps on the sand and sink into the cool, charcoal waters to calm my mind. Amanaka is there too. The flint crunches on the blade of his royal halberd, which he meticulously sharpens from the shore. I sit down next to him to dry off in the warm breeze and say, What are you reckoning about this hunt? We're stronger than ever now. How's Shackney doing? Still in shock. She was crying last night, but I don't think she blames Rexes for fighting her brother. All he did was respect her will by taking her place in the ordeal. I agree, boss. It's time to go. Wake the others. Yes, boss. And stop calling me boss. Yes, boss. <sighs> Our land is not actually protected by any fences, palisades, or hedges of stakes with heads on them. Because we may be rough fighters, but we're not savages. But above all, we are feared. Not to mention the fact that Adalar and Ansem have gone to great lengths to erect some original border systems, depending on their hostility to us. What's certain is that our territory is not limited to a strip of land where crabs swarm at low tide. We boast much more land that stretches for thousands of feet of jungle in the hinterland, which is where we're now heading. Numerous patrols have been sent into the uncharted lands. As for the protection of our inland areas, this is limited to a few scouts with an unparalleled sense of echolocation. Some posted at strategic points, others more numerous on the coastal strip for close-up surveillance. According to my father, a territory that is too spread out is harder to protect. However, I suspect him of attempting a peaceful demonstration of strength and confidence in his troops by sending a small guard along our borderlines. A way of setting the tone that seems to have worked so far. We fear what we don't see, he often says. Most of the crag are awaiting us in the place that could be described as the northern gateway to the shores. More than just a gateway, this is a hilly sanctuary with gigantic sand statues, which have become everlasting thanks to their sap-based binding agent. Our deities have been depicted in great detail 
as if they were once real. Turtles, planets, stars, and other constellations loom over us as we walk through the palm trees and ancient pines. The trees form a corridor whose greens are as changeable as the winds. Their sharp leaves rustle, and the bluish thorns rumble violently overhead as the wind rushes through the green gullet, already darkening due to the late hour. The day is fading, and most of the revelers are saying their goodbyes. My father and the high shaman Jokpa are there, but they are not the masters of ceremony. They let us swim through the crowd, receive the cheers, high fives. Everyone does their bit without crossing the line of the North Gate. For this is the path that the Maelstrom takes alone to become a crag warrior. Our colleagues are obviously talking about the Mondricorn, which we are to seek out in its territory to kill and bring back its horns. It's up to me to take him on. We all agreed on that. The journey will be tough, and the fight even tougher. This final trial, which is expected to last more than a month, is far more difficult than the previous ones. As a Krog who moves away from the seas, sees their breath shrivel and their vital essences snuffed out. But it's also the most interesting. We'll finally be able to fight with all our strength. And fighting is what the Maelstrom do best. <laughs> I'm delighted to see the Squilla finally let go. But before all that, several weeks of walking lie before us, with their share of joys and unforeseen events. First, we'll need to make our way out of the maze of giant palms to reach the barren cliff which marks out the borders of our shores. We'll be walking on the rocky ridge for a good week. From there, We'll climb down the rock to follow the Adelar border and walk through the forest to the crossroads, which is a mere crossing place between the Ansem, Adelar, Drogors, and Krag lands. We'll be crossing the neutral zones, so we will need to be careful, because that's where the Mondracorns have made their homes. We need a dominant male, the biggest, one with horns of power, and also the most dangerous. The custom of bringing back the horns has existed among my people since the Great Exile, for this was the species that my ancestors fought fiercely for centuries for mastery of the shores. The beast is easily identified. Unlike the males of her species, this one must be about my father's size, and therefore twice as big as me. Four arms as thick as ancient oaks, raw muscle, 
capable of smashing you with a backhand. Her mane is white and adorns her throat. Hooves that can turn rock into sand, crush a body, and make the earth tremble. The agility of a young monkey and the malice of a wise ancient. What we're up against is quite capable of giving us a very hard time if we don't take her seriously. And we wouldn't be the first Maelstrom team to not come back from the hunt. Unfortunately for her, we're the best there is. Calm down, Sleek. Nobody saw you, so stop playing with your food. It's all good. You buried the scumbag on the opposite side far to the southeast. Ain't nobody gonna find him there. And I'm not a fool. I even covered up what happened in case the Queen starts investigating the case. I smashed him with a stone in just the right places, so it could look like it was anybody's work. I wasn't the only one who wanted him hurt. And of course, I didn't do it on purpose. No one will know it was me. I cleaned up everything before sunrise. Gah! Why am I sweating so much just thinking about it? Is it because I'm afraid of getting caught or, or because I had a bad feeling I was being watched? Was I? Or was it just my imagination? I also thought that, well, maybe possibly I might end up with a girl and not be alone. But let's look at it on the bright side. I'm still the hero of the story and the fishermen are cheering for me as we go past the North Gate. Perfect, Sleek! If you come back victoriously from this trial, you'll be knee-deep in beautiful babes in seconds. And the Mondracorn is not Akuyande. He won't be able to resist my power. And maybe even the turtle might fall under my spell. But for now, we smile and keep a low profile, right? Right. Well, I'm not in the best shape and I don't want anyone to know about my nocturnal escapade. I just carry my backpack and take a nap whenever we set up camp to recharge my good old batteries. The fact that everyone is wondering if I blame Rexus for disqualifying my brother by beating him pisses me off far more than the facts themselves. They're just waiting for my reaction. Some will think me a coward for not going after the Squilla. Well, at least those who have failed to understand the subtlety of this trial. I respect Rookin's wishes. And I've gotten to know the Squilla well enough to realize that he's anything but a baddie. And if Rook let Rexus take his place, I guess he did it for me, too. And the least I can do is respect the strength of the Squilla that got us here. Because my brother believed in him and saw things clearly. Rexus deserves his place more than any crag. It's been a long time since I fought this hard. <laughs> Have I ever? Sleek looks exhausted and I can't even imagine how he ended his evening. I discreetly stick an invigorating needle into him as he bids the Krog a final farewell. We go through the door and enter the canopy. The end of a rain shower leaves large drops splattering on the soft earth. The fresh environment won't be able to contain the swarms of mosquitoes that are beginning to swarm around us. The wind blows at our backs, as if pushing us into the jungle, or rather as if the jungle were sucking us into its green lungs. Soon, the triumphant atmosphere that had so encouraged us fades, giving way to silence. Only an hour's walk, and we are already far from the village. Back to reality.
Facing a month's worth of slogging through muggy, harsh nature, the backpacks weigh a ton. The twilight rains, and our eyes have trouble adjusting to the mongrel light that between wild dogs and wolves turns the slightest creak into a threat and the smallest shadow into a potential predator. The sandy path has given way to firmer ground, made up of roots that trip us up in the dark, so we decide to light torches of dried seaweed. The warnings of the birds are gradually joined by all sorts of wild cries, turning the whole scene into a hysterical performance just behind the thickets. Ignore them. They're just rodents, I tell myself. Amanaka leads the way. His halberd, which remains behind his back, reassures me. No danger in the vicinity. Finally, the jungle opens up. Vegetation is becoming scarce, gradually replaced by rock, which lengthens our stride. The flayed cliff soon rises before us. The steep, wet stone, as sharp as glass, gleams under the full moon in all its splendor. I reckon we've already walked for three hours. We're gonna have to climb. Do you realize we're following in the footsteps of every great Maelstrom generation? One thing I do know is that I'm hungry. So when we get to the top, I'm taking a snack break. We'll have to go fishing. Ready for it? No way, old cod. We said we were gonna draw lots. Just a few dozen meters of climbing, and I realize how miserable it is to be a marine creature allergic to land. The wind hits our bags with full force, almost causing us to slip off with each blow. Our exposed hands soon burn on contact with the thin edges. Yesterday, hunters under the waves. Tonight, panic-stricken worms on a great rock. We aren't taught the basics of climbing in the training program for young stars, and here we are, winging it. Rex is in the lead, crawls between the crevices and rocky spines, looking for a feasible route. He regularly spikes a coral tendril in the side of the hill, looping the seaweed rope around it and using it as a support for climbing. Each new hold requires a terrible push from our legs to propel our overburdened carcass half a stroke higher. The slightest clumsy movement results in a nasty scrape or a bump in the knee, and I'm kind of glad it's dark so I can't look down. Sometimes, one of my team members asks for a needle to numb the pain or to relax the muscles. I then release the rope with one hand and try to aim at the nerve point or a large vein that will deliver my potion. The climb takes two days before we finally arrive, soaked in sweat on a rocky ridge several thousand strokes above sea level. The ocean stretches out into infinite darkness, but its salty air is barely enough to get our breath back. The night is heavy as lead and as dark as octopus ink. The wind is icy and the air is different from what I've experienced so far. We're designed to consume dense oxygen, crushed by marine pressure, but this seems like poison, more diffused in the atmosphere, almost impossible to grasp. Gills or lungs don't seem to be able to take enough in with each breath. It takes us more than an hour to get used to the environment and get over our dizziness. To our left are black waves as far as the eye can see, crossed by the milky trail of the lunar halo. To our right, the virgin forest stretches for thousands of strokes. Now we have a seven-day walk over this high pass to look forward to. All we have to do is follow the jungle slope, which will gradually take us north, and then it's an easy slide into the hinterland. 
We need to cross this pass to get into the highlands of our territories, and to avoid the land of the Lindras, those great beasts who would finish off even the five of us. As we wade through the uneven stone, twisting an ankle in a hollow, stumbling after a slip on an outcrop concealed by the clouds of mist, the vertiginous ridge ends up as a gently sloping valley forming a large bowl with walls smoothed by erosion. In the midst of it, I can see a mass of fog hovering over it, like a broth into which we'll descend. Soon the noise of the waves breaking below can no longer be heard. As we descend into this rocky valley, gray stones appear, which we shamans call stells pointing to the sky. They are studded with inscriptions carved into the rock in the form of runes which, in the past, had been used to guide the Adalar spotters through this maze of traps. No doubt about it, we are indeed surveying the southern flank of the flayed cliffs whose sad story Gakpe recounted several years ago. The Maze of the Stellis. Great War, the battle of the shores between my people and the Adalar. Everyone knows this part of the story. The Adalar, driven out of the Ataraxic Cave, where our King Akuyandi now sits, were forced to flee the regions we are now traveling through. They were hunted down in the jungle, here and beyond, until they took up residence where no one would look for them. The Carmine Forest. But before settling there permanently, they spent several years in flight. Every time they found refuge in one place, they were defeated and pushed further back. It was here, on this cliff, that the second most important battle of their exile took place. When we leave the maze of the Stells from the north, we'll reach what was once their outpost, the Flayed Cliffs. This point was difficult to attack from the maze, and a few centuries earlier, all five of us would have been dead by now. This open territory gave them a view of everything that could happen from the south, as well as an advantage in the field. Ten sentinels stationed overhead could have fought a battalion of 200 soldiers just by throwing spears and letting traps and fear do the rest. The cliffs also provided access to the sea and therefore to food, while they desalinated water for drinking. The place was clearly impregnable, which is why they focused most of their force on the north side, where the cliff was much harder to defend. That's why my ancestors, guided by the Ansom, who knew the terrain so well, waited until the conditions were as unfavorable for the enemy as for themselves before attacking. This strategy reduced the chances of victory to one in two and thus to a much fairer ratio. They had to wait months before the hurricane to pass through the region so they could launch the final offensive. All the Adalar's landmarks and military defense strategy were turned completely upside down. They were unable to stand upright because of the high winds and the slippery wall. It was impossible to keep a good lookout over the northern facade or the sense of the enemy approaching. It was risky enough even to fight, but the Crag and Ansom were ready. They divided their forces into three. The first and smallest army was equipped with torches on the outskirts of the maze, here in the south, and lit a host of fires to simulate a colossal amount of imaginary warriors. The second army, representing the bulk of the forces, was posted to the east. They had coated their boots with a sticky resin and reduced their equipment to a minimum. They launched a false offensive through the maze as a decoy, and when the storm was in full flow, the second army attacked from the eastern flank. 
the surprise effect caused a general panic. When supplies and troop rotations between the two Adalar fronts were needed, a third army, made up of the best Krog and Ansom climbers, arrived from the western flank of the mountain and cut their troops in two. The Adalar, gradually realizing that they had no chance and that above all they had to survive, had no choice but to flee northwest towards the Carmine Forest. But the strategy put in place by the Ansom and Krag gave very few possibilities for retreat. The Adalar then tasked a group of a few hundred warriors with holding the enemy back for as long as possible so that everyone else could flee. A necessary sacrifice for the greater good. Once the bulk were safe, and in a last-ditch attempt at survival, the last Adalar surrounded, threw themselves off the cliffs into the raging waves like mice cornered by flames. The currents were treacherous, and some drowned immediately, swept out to sea by the waves or sucked under the cliff into underwater caves. They were the lucky ones. The others, trapped by the currents, had to draw on all their strength to cling on in an area of neutral current and wait for a change in the current that never came. But this patch of water was not spared the brutality of the swell, and huge waves ravaged it every second. The peaks formed were several strokes high and threw them into the cliffs. Some died instantly, while others were more agile and absorbed the shock, breaking limbs and leaving shreds of flesh on the thorny rock. Then it was their turn, sucked in by the surf to be tossed around, held at the surface and slammed into the rock over and over. My ancestors recognized an incredible sense of courage in the enemy, as this hell lasted three days until the last of them was dragged to their death. Finally, the waters ran red, and the rocky alcoves that appeared when the tide went out revealed shreds of skin, torn limbs, and broken corpses. Later, the crag gave them martyr status and named the place in their honor. I said a prayer for these Adalar because they may be our enemies, but I had nothing personal against them. At the bottom of the cauldron, which houses the maze, the fog is total, and we are forced to rope ourselves together so we don't lose track of each other. We hobble slowly between the stones for a good hour. The silence is overwhelming and seems to increase the noise of our footsteps and of the equipment clinging to the bags tenfold. The rope is no longer taut in front of me, and I realize that this is where we stop. Time to eat, says Amanaka, putting his bag down. What is there to eat here? How am I gonna find the fish in this rack-infested hell? You're the one who's been bugging us to take a break. And stop yelling, we can hear you all the way to the shore. There's nobody there, Shackney. No one can hear you. Hello? Anyone? The eel's voice bounces off the sides of the valley and fades away in the distance. You see? Getting annoyed is a waste of time. This part of the country is deserted. Let's both calm down. Let's take a ration each. Once we're out of here, we won't need it anyway. Sleek complies by throwing his bag on the ground. We lean against a large stell, unwrap a portion of dried fish each, and dine in silence. My chewing sounds louder than a thunderstorm in this old cemetery, behind the sound of flesh tearing and cracking under my teeth. I sense a tiny rustle in the recesses of the nearest slope. To avoid panicking the group, I discreetly prick a needle behind my ear. Amanaka and Rexus seem to have noticed their presence as well. It looks like we have guests. 
hundreds of them watching us from the rocky enclave. A scream rends the silence that had enveloped us. The silent valley has turned into a riot of discord. Around us, almost a hundred fifties are yelling at each other in friendship, something they certainly aren't displaying to us. These fucking monkeys can't do anything to us! They're just cowardly lightweights! They're too smart not to understand the difference in strength between us and them. And that's the worst thing about these bugs. They might look like just a pack of primates, but they're more like a parasite that feeds on the energy of its prey. And devours you from the inside, indifferent to the extreme suffering they cause their victim. You mean like the worms that grow inside certain insects and explode from in their guts once they've finished eating their insides? Exactly, Sleek. They'll start by depriving us of sleep for several days. And then sent out scouts who'll find a breach in our fatigue-ridden defenses. Our equipment will disappear. And then, they'll scream and become more violent as we become weaker. They'll start by throwing stones, bigger and bigger. And then fruit to attract insects as we sleep. They'll drive us crazy. And nature will do the rest. So let's get out of here! What are we waiting for? No, their playground extends far beyond our lands. They roam absolutely everywhere. There's no way they're going to let us go that easily. Believe me, these things will follow us to the grave. Rexes, I like you. But do you have any solutions rather than just ways for all of us to die? I've got one or two tricks up my sleeve. I came across them once before when I was training in the jungle south of the shores. I like to make what's called an example. A what? An example means catching two or three and slaughtering them with enough violence that the others will want to leave us alone for good. And above all, to show off our catches like trophies. Well, that sounds wonderful. And how do we go about it? They're far too nimble for us to fall on them tonight or even tomorrow. We need to let them think they can get close. But you just said they weren't stupid enough for that. They're certainly smart but they're also greedy. I see where you're coming from, smile Shackney. We're gonna offer them a big prize on a plate, our backpacks. When they approach, we'll fall on them. Amanaka stands up with a yawn. I like your plan, but tonight I'd like to rest a little. Akanza, will you stick a needle in me? What kind? The one that awakens the senses. I do so carefully. Once the prince has been pricked, he bends down and picks up a stone the size of my head, looks at it from all angles, and tosses it to and fro in his palm. This should do the trick for tonight. Amanaka takes a run and hurls the stone with all his strength into the night. I wish I hadn't been stung too, because the ensuing scene makes me gag. He'd given the same demonstration two days ago with a fish. As expected, the stone cleaves the darkness and literally blows up the skull of a fifki standing at the top of a ridge, tearing off neck bones and vertebrae in its path. The sound is disgusting, but the poor bastard doesn't suffer for long. The small body collapses on the spot. The rest of the horde dissipates in panic and darkness, although probably not far. And silence returns to envelop us in its cool embrace. We wake up to the sound of a flock of seagulls flying over the cliffs. There's no trace of the Fifkies except for the spatter of blood left by the one shot by Amanaka yesterday. They've probably cleared his body away. We get back on track, and soon the terrain begins to slope slightly upwards, 
a sign that we'll soon have crossed through the maze. The sun is at its zenith when we finally reach the flayed cliffs. The stones of the maze below are mere gray dots in the valley. The wind is back, and we move forward in the midst of the clouds that mask the ocean, which gives off a distant roar, the only sign of its existence. Amanaka says we must stop to eat and finalize our plan. In the distance, on the rock, some fifkies have already returned and are galloping along the ridge, but they remain out of reach of any stones we might throw at them. The same trick won't work a second time tonight. Amanaka has chosen a ledge that will provide, with a little climbing and a lot of rope, access to the sea. We draw lots. Right. Fuck off! Sleek rages when Luck assigns him the chore of fishing. Rex's is appointed to fetch wood. He does so immediately and disappears under the cottony clouds towards the jungle. The eel has taken a net, abseils down the wall, and also disappears. Three hours pass before he returns. One for the team. That rope came in handy, he says proudly, swinging his catch at our feet. The net is full of all kinds of fish, still stiff from the electric shocks. Rex's also returns with a haul of dry wood, and we light a fire. The flesh is soon grilling in the center of our circle and gives off a tantalizing smell. We'll eat some of it and dry the rest with the coarse salt the shamans gave us. It should give us two days of food. You realize, of course, those are the Drogar's mountains in the distance. Those cannibalistic bastards who eke out a groglodyte existence in their minds. I can't believe I'm going to see one for real! Exclaimed Sleek, pointing to two small dark peaks that interrupt the horizon. A shiver runs down my spine at the very mention of this people, known to children from an early age through terrifying tales and rumors. My fear fades when I realize that the eel's completely off the mark. Don't jinx things, eel. Answers Rex's as he turns the fish on their spit. Firstly, it's not a groglodyte, but a troglodyte, and then it's not the Drogar Mountains at all, you dolt. (sighs) It's completely impossible to see them from here. They're hundreds of thousands of strokes away. All you're seeing is, at best, the end of the flayed cliffs we're walking on. I hear they eat their children, and anything else they come across, whoa. Stop trying to scare us. It won't work. Did you even listen to my little geography lesson just now? I'm not joking. That's what Iwabi told Pappy Wongi. He said that he often goes there to escort the high shaman Jackpa, who negotiates with their chief, Drahalk. They say the Drogars are a bunch of mentalists. No respect for each other. They even eat each other. Imagine bumping into them while we're hunting. It's said that when they capture their prisoners, they... Cooked them over a low flame in boiling oil. Not so much for the taste, but for the pleasure of seeing people scream. We won't see any Drogor around here. And even if these mountains were the sinuous mountains, which they are not, Adalar sentinels and handsome patrols are stationed day and night on the passes. Damn! I'd have liked to show them that Sleek doesn't get fried. Sleek fries others! I mean, only Drogors. Nobody else, right? Nobody. You'll catch the thief kiss up. All of you, get your strength up. We can't stop until nightfall. The scum is already behind us. Says Rexus slowly, staring east, as if trying to make something out. We put out the fire as quickly as we started it, and set off again for a few hours of walking. The atmosphere is tense because we are yet to find the ideal place to set the trap. 
Our chosen location is on a bend in the cliffs, which causes the road to veer eastwards away from the sea. The bend forms a promontory, like an overhead dam over the bluff. Our choice is made for us by the many erosion-polished crevices that will conceal the two who are tasked with driving our prey to the other three, as well as our position upwind. But this will be our last night near the sea. The horde returned after sunset. First there was a clamor of grunts, then the atmosphere descended into a cacophony of screams from the depths of their guts. Carried along by the mob and in the grip of mass hysteria, they promised us certain revenge. Good. These beasts seem to have some pride, and the first trials taught me that it comes before a fall. We tie the bags together so they are too heavy to carry, and then display them prominently at the exit of the camp. And then we wait for many hours. A few projectiles start to veer in our direction at mealtime, and then rain down on us all night. Shockney, Slick, and Arkansa remain by the fire. I slip away with Rexes under a rocky spur. The bivouac, which we fed with greenwood, has smoked and masked our smell, and we've become invisible. Dawn is breaking, and a strange silence has returned. For a moment, I was afraid our targets had spotted a wolf and were keeping their distance, but a small, hairy, waddling form soon comes into view. In a steep corner, some twenty-five strokes from the camp. If they follow the plan, then my three team members will be faking exhaustion, drowsiness, and snoring when they've actually been pierced with anti-fatigue needles concocted by the turtle. The first Fifkis timidly strolls over the ridge. He's alone. The bug is bigger than I had imagined. From my vantage point, I can easily come out of hiding and impale him with a halberd. And that's what I'd have done if the next second when I activated my sonar, I hadn't seen a good 30 Fifkis climbing silently along the cliff where Slick, Ark, and Shackney weren't expecting them to be at all. It was impossible to warn them. Everyone would flee, and we'd lose several more days making a new trap. And we certainly don't need any more days of lost sleep. With a wave, I pass the message to Rexus, who's standing still on my right. He nods, and says the best thing to do is let the three of them get caught by surprise and get involved before the Fifkis do too much damage. If I've analyzed the situation correctly, the ones climbing the cliff are supposed to create a diversion, while the first one steals at least one bag. 
he'll probably fail because the weight of it is too much for him. Then I'll reach him in plenty of time while the Squilla enters the fray. Another, much more dangerous prospect immediately opens up before me. They have no idea that I'm there, and it's possible that their scout is the distraction. In this case, my comrades will be focused on the bags and will therefore have their back to the pack when it falls on them. With so many of them, it will be child's play to pull them crashing down into the void. They finally seem to be taking the bait. Unfortunately, my hearing only detects a single scout from the ridge who is heading determinately towards our equipment. I'm almost disappointed. We don't move until Amanaka and Rexes close the trap. From the corner of my eye, I see the primate rear up on its hind legs and check that we are not moving. I let out a snore. He sniffs the bags, notices the knots, and tears the braided seaweed ropes with a fang, as if they were made of cotton. It seems that once again we've underestimated the wonders of nature. He starts to dig with his long fingers in a pocket. Then, in the main cavity, he opens the survival rations, throws them into the void. What are you doing, Amanaka? Why are you letting him rummage through all our stuff like that? A long minute passes. The fifth key continues to cause havoc with our stuff, banging a bull as if he wants us to wake up. Sleek wriggles more and more beside me as the animal swings the contents of the bag over the cliff. What the fuck are they doing? He hisses. I don't have an answer for him because I myself am finding it hard to understand the situation which is becoming absurd as the seconds tick by. The Fifkies themselves don't seem to understand why we still haven't got up. He's tearing into the contents of a second bag, mine, the one containing my supply of herbs and potions. Without them, I'm just a needle-throwing scholar with no business being on a battlefield. Potions are what links my shamanic knowledge and the art of combat. Without them, I'm just a mixture of two opposing disciplines without any synergy. There's no way I'm going to let him touch what my Uncle Gakpe left me any longer. With a sharp movement, I nail the paw of the curious beast who's looking at one of my bottles. He screams. Shockney and Sleek leap to their feet, and Amanaka finally comes out of hiding alongside the Squilla. I don't have time to hear what they are saying when a dozen hands from behind descend on my shell, my ankles, my wrists, and drag me down the cliff. Like Rex's. I thought that if we waited them out, the monkeys would make a coordination error. But that was not counting on an impulsive reaction from Ark, the last person after the Skrilla, capable of such an impulsive act, in my opinion. When all said and done, it seems something got her riled up. I reach the scout in two leaps. I feint to draw him where I want him. He dodges and meets the shaft of my weapon in his forehead. It goes crack. He collapses. And without knowing if he is still alive, I follow Rex's and join the others. Ark almost sees her adventure end here, but Slick reflexively wraps himself around one of her legs and grabs Shakti's hands. It's impossible for him to fire under these conditions. 
Rexus rushes towards them, but the Axolotl is already covered in bites, and although she has assumed her battle form by tripling her muscle size, the Fifkis are dragging her toward the dangerous cliff. They hook her legs, lacerate her tendons, slice off a finger, and sink their fangs into her flanks. She screams, and in a rush of blood, she pulls Slick and Ark back from the edge. Rexus immediately starts punching. Five attackers are propelled into the air. With a fluid punch, he takes off the head of a sixth. In a few seconds, I'm on the spot. I strike with the handle to avoid damaging them too much. Sometimes I throw one into the air for fun. Because we orcas love to play. With each blow, a Filskis falls unconscious. Rexus has released the axolotl and takes a simpler approach than me. Everything he touches is pulverized and flies through the air. Arkansa and Slick are on their feet and catching their breath. The monkeys quickly retreat. At our feet, a dozen Fifkis are dead or seriously injured. The bags! Yells Shakni. That's the thing. It seems that we weren't the target after all. A second group of Fifkis heads off in the early dawn with our equipment. <sighs> Those bastards know their job. Unluckily for them, I had provided for this and put our shaman's equipment in a safe place before even entering the pile. And as I intend to sleep for the next few nights, I'll have to show them that we crag can become rather nasty when it comes to protecting our own or fulfilling an astral tradition. It's time that the Fifkis get to know the people who were involved in the legend of the Flayed Cliff. What a fucking night! Ark almost died and I saved her! If she doesn't put out when we get back to shore, <laughs> I gotta say those Kifka dudes were pretty smart. It's not every day that beasts can mess with Sleek like they did. I totally fell for their scheme and when we turned around, the bags disappeared. But my man Amon was on it! He decided to show them that they shouldn't rile us up too much. We tied up those critters with the leftover rope we found and ate our last ration to sort our heads out. Then we waited all day in the same place for those bastards would find us. The axolotl has grown her finger back. Oh, I love it when she does that thing. And then parasites from the previous day showed up. Of the five captured, two remained alive. We started by burning them alive in front of their friends. Ooh. Desperate times call for desperate measures, as they say. We're not anti-nature as such, but there are only a few ways of getting rid of a horde of thick. So we applied the good old Rexus method, as he's the only one who knew what he was talking about. Damn! Screaming when we set the fire! It took a good 15 minutes to finish him off, and I think that must have chilled a lot of people. 
<laughs> oh man, it felt good to spoil their party in the dark night. And then, as we had no more rations, we filled ourselves up with calories by stuffing ourselves with two monkeys roasted under their freaked out eyes. <laughs> Nothing was wasted. The axolotl and the tortoise refused to eat. They don't know what they're missing. Oh, it's better than octopus. Then we slept peacefully. With a lookout, of course, because you can't be too careful. But nothing happened at night. Seems they chickened out. And anyway, we had nothing left to steal. Then the morning comes and Amanaka dismembers the three remaining corpses and spreads the loose pieces out around our camp as a warning. He skewers the heads on his big gun, and we hit the road, hoping the message will get through. The sad thing about this victorious ending is that, uh, we have at least four or five more days of hard work left before we reach the jungle. We've nothing left to eat, and we just scared away the best food we could find here in the paradise of rock. The monkeys leave as they came, leaving us with a few feathers in our cap. The ropes have been torn to shreds, and without them, we won't be able to reach the forest at the planned location. While we've escaped an even more hazardous abseil than our ascent, this comes at the cost of three more days of walking on these desolate ridges. The idea is simple. Instead of descending into the jungle, we'll continue a little further up the ridge, inland, until the terrain subsides and descends naturally. That'll take us to the edge of the Adelar territory in the Carmenet Forest. I must admit that at first I was pleased to see aerobatics give way to hiking, but here's the thing. We've been walking for three days since the Fifth Keys, and we're literally starving. We spent the two days following the cliff, struggling with headaches and nausea due to the sea air becoming rarer as we move deeper into the continent. The sea spray has disappeared and the atmosphere has lost its saltiness. Luckily, I still have my herbs and I've been able to make herbal teas to minimize the effects of withdrawal. The night is calmer and as our condition improves, we realize our bodies are hungry. No more fishing, no more survival rations, no more salt spray. We'll have to hunt and make do with the tasteless freshwater rain. At the sickly pace we're dragging our feet, it'll take us another two full days to reach the track that descends into the Carmenet Forest. The altitude is a chance to collect a host of rare herbs that are found in these regions. Excellent healing agents, which I hope to do without for as long as possible and which, with the weeds, are proving to be the only trace of life capable of eking out an existence here. The stone we are now walking on is duller than the salt-washed coastal cliffs. Here, gray is king, and the wind whistles between the granite peaks that tower above us. Tonight, like the previous one, we'll probably spend shivering in front of the meager embers made from the twigs collected here and there during the walk. The only word that comes to my mind when I contemplate our surroundings? Death. The mountain has cracked over the centuries. Great collapsed ridges, broken edges, fragments of pebbles, endlessly everywhere under our feet, and always the wind flowing like a river through these gorges of mournful rock, as if the earth around us is crying. Under the leaden sky, which matches our mood, we finish our morning tea, which is supposed to fool us that we have a full belly, and we set off without a word. Here, the zenith, 
is as sparsely lit as the twilight of a stormy evening. After camping in an alcove sheltered from the wind, we just put one foot in front of the other on what I guess are ancient paths strewn with rubble and perennial grasses. For the first time in far too long, a cry rings out over our heads. It's the fucking fee 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 Now we can eat! This screaming has nothing to do with it. It's a protege, a kind of raptor. But can we eat it? Their flesh is rancid, but their eggs are huge and extremely nutritious. His words sound like a blessing, and clearly we were all thinking the same thing at the same time. And is there a but? Indeed. Their nest is very difficult to get to. This species is also pretty unusual in that it evolves in symbiosis with a smaller, but also more voracious species. Flint's darlings. They're the real danger. It seems that every time a possibility opens up, it comes with its own danger. Yeah, right, and the possibility in question is to avoid starving to death, so don't be a wimp! How do you steal their eggs? Just by climbing. But if the two adults start to scream, a swarm of 10,000 starlings swoop down on the aggressor, tearing off their skin with their beak. Within minutes, it's over. You're a walking corpse. And they didn't just yell for help just then? I guess not. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here talking. I've never met these animals, but that's what the squealers say. Still, you're very knowledgeable on the subject. You and your clan. My clan is still part of the Crag Brotherhood, and the Crags are born explorers. During these centuries of exile, we've studied the fauna and flora of the Earth. Were you planning to leave? Let yourself be chased away? If no one comes forward to save our group from starvation, then I'll do it. After all, I'm the best one for the job. Hey, are we confident? I hope you'll take this story back to the clan. It's a meager return. Since when do you give a damn about your image? Sorry, Sleek, but if I don't put myself forward, nobody will do it. Now, let me do my job and listen to my strategy. A strange display of pride on the part of Rexus. For fetching eggs is far less glorious than anything he's ever done before. But, never mind. He has his own logic, and as a bonus, it's shut the eel's mouth. The strategy is simple. Rexus is the best climber, so he's the one who's chosen to go to the nest. His shell also offers him considerable protection against swarms of birds. For my part, I'm supposed to send two boomerangs to neutralize the two birds of prey before they sound the alarm. We agree that the Squilla will silently climb the cliff and get as close to the nest as possible without being spotted in case I miss one of my two targets. If one of the two adults sounds the alarm, he'll take the eggs by force and descend as quickly as possible. I'll do it! But Sleek has decided otherwise. But you can't climb! I'm the most silent one. I don't make any noise. Every time Rexus touches something, it sounds like a branch breaking. Besides, he'll get his ass kicked in ten seconds. And how do you plan to get up there? Leave that up to me. Rexus surrenders his place without hesitation. Sleek begins his awkward ascent. Arkansa has told him to smear his whole body with magnesia from the cliffs for grip. He climbs with difficulty, slipping into the corners, reliefs, hollows, protrusions, scrapes and gullies that clad the great rocky peak. At its summit is the nest. He nearly falls several times, but is making dangerous progress towards the summit. The two protégés are at their posts. We've approached behind their backs and are now at the foot of the stone column, where they can no longer see us. In a few long minutes, Sleek has run no more than halfway and is more than 50 strokes high. 
the idiot is waving to us to indicate that everything's fine when no one has asked him. Keep going and hurry up, says Amanaka. The eel quietly pulls himself up under the ledge where the nest is located, using the strength of his arms. I wonder how he's sticking to such a wet wall. Is it really such a good idea for him to go up there? What does Rexus have in mind? The nest is within reach. The prince gives me the starting signal, and I shift positions discreetly. I'm waiting for a lull in the wind. When it shows up, I send the first boomerang. In less than a second, I'm already armed for the second one. But finding a plan that works with Sleek around is impossible. He doesn't wait for me to get started, he's already in the nest! The first bird of prey falls limply, but the second rises into the air and goes out of range! I didn't climb this slippery rock for fun. And I hope I've showed that turtle that I'm no wimp. Wait for that axolotl to take the lead? Uh Uh-uh. And then what? After she dislodges tens of thousands of ravenous starlings, something clicks in my mind. So without missing a beat, I run to the nest before she overwhelms the second one. It flies away and raises the alarm as expected. Oh my god! The cry of earlier was a mere squeak compared to what pierces my eardrums now! It's like a whale blowing a war horn at full blast so loud that it must be heard in the next village! I don't take the egg straight away. There's no way I came all this way to slink off like a tadpole. I actually wanted the bird's scream to bring in the main event, and it isn't slow in coming when the whole of Nuora is made aware that the great sleek is stripping this nest. I get out as fast as I can and I climb two more strokes to the top of this great stone tower. It's quite flat, and I have space. Not a bad view over the gloom. Down below, they must have already thought I was a goner, and knowing the prince, he told them not to move. And he was absolutely right, because the target is me. I clearly saw Sleek barge into the nest to scare the protégés. Shackney shot down the first and missed the second. He then came out empty-handed and climbed to the top of the peak. What's she doing, you guys? Croaks Shackney's voice, choked by Amanaka's big paw on her mouth. Don't make a sound. If they see us, they'll get all five of us. The gray sky turns to black in a few seconds. A curtain of night has risen above us and is swooping down towards the eel. It's called a murmuration, or black sun. Come to Papa! He barks. There's a buzz in the air. Silex's starlings begin to swoop as they circle the python in perfect sync with each other. The phenomenon is due to the fact that each individual in the cloud reacts to its 14th closest wingmen. This allows the birds to move as one, without leaders, and without ever colliding. But the cloud will quit this marvelous aerial ballet for a single common goal, the destruction of Sleek. The brown, swirling wave separates erratically, and the sky seems to disgorge dark streams that speed down towards the eel. Soon, their entire mass falls on him. From here, it looks like a colossal swarm of flies. But Sleek hasn't said his last words. A few seconds pass, and now dead starlings are raining down over our heads. We're forced to take shelter so we don't get seriously bruised. They crash around us with a thud as the eel electrocutes anything that touches him, and the whole horde of flyers passes by. 
Soon the ground is lined with thousands of dead birds, which we're forced to walk on to see what happened to Sleek. From the top of his python, he proclaims, Tonight ye shall feast to the health of the great Sleek, young maelstroms! Amanaka looks suspiciously at the squilla. I suppose starlings are edible? And they're much better than eggs. You'd think you'd know the eel would want to tempt the devil. Who knows? 